श्री गौरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाय हरिनाम प्रभु की जाय कोविड भक्त वृंद की जाय कोविड परमानंदे गुड मॉर्निंग एवरीवन आई एम सीन यू मेनी इयर्स आर यू लिविंग हियर नेक्स्ट डोर आर यू हियर विद फैमिली और आई कम टू एम्बेरस यू वे केम टू एम्बेरस मी आई गॉट ऑल ऑफ द क्वोट्स आउट ऑफ हियर फ्रॉम शोल बाबा What is it? I can't read the title. Distribute books, distribute books, distribute books. Oh. <laughs> In case any prospective disciples don't understand who you actually are. <laughs> this was back. Uh huh. Yeah. As a brahmachari, so. So. Nice to be with all of you. As you may know, that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu went to Vrindavan, and. Um, it was his aspiration for some time especially from the time of taking sanyas which in one sense means to enter the forest and for godi vaishnav is a mean means to enter the the forest of brinda brindavan but um, due to the affection of his devotees he was checked from going time and again at advaita chandra's house initially Actually, before that, after taking sannyasi, went, but it was checked by Nityananda Prabhu and brought to Advaita's house, and then further checked by the affection of uh, Sachimata, which uh, gave rise to his coming to Puri, and then in Puri he tried to go, and year after year, by the tricks, in his own words, of Ramananda and uh, Swarup. He was also checked from going, and finally he had the opportunity to go, and he went to Navadweep on his way, and there was more interference, and again back, and finally he did go to Vrindavan. So there may be some difficulty in going to Vrindavan, but we should persevere. And when he arrived. There, he very much had the desire to have the darshan of the deity of Gopal, Madhavendra Puri's deity. Govardhan, of course, is central to Vrindavan. It's on account of Govardhan that the inhabitants of Vrindavan moved from Gokul to Vrindavan, coming across the Jumuna in uh, just a few years, about three or so. Plus three plus years after Krishna's and Ram's birth, he went for greener grasses for the cows. And Govardhan, Govardhan means who increases Vardhana, the go, so cows nourishes the cows, and the cows, of course, with their livelihood. You can say that they were on the go, as we say, but we are on the go in terms of go meaning the senses. And the senses are taking us here, there, and everywhere, and often in different directions. Unfortunately, at the same time, which only serves to disturb the mind, unsettle us. So it's just a slight adjustment from "go" meaning cow, senses to "go" meaning cows. Cows are actually real wealth. All the Vedic mantras are actually cows. You might know that in their personified form. And of course, the Vedas 
show the way to godly life. Krishna was named Govinda by Indra, and in some Puranas, the Leela of Govardhan, he was named Upendra. The names mean the same, really. Upa means, it's a prefix, it means, can mean a number of different things, but here it means Upa Indra, who's a big Indra. Indra means the chief. So you may know that the, go the conclusion of Govardhan Leela was the humbling of Indradev, who coronated Krishna as the king of the gods, either by the name, giving the name Upendra, which means the Indra of Indra, the chief god of the gods, or Govinda, same meaning, who's the master of the cows, which is the Vedas, so who's mastered the Vedas, is certainly superior to Indra, who has some place in the Vedas, but he's not the master of them. Trigunya Bhavardhana. In another place in the Gita is mentioned by Krishna. To rise above the Vedas. This is his position. That is the position of Golok, although difficult to understand, even by the gods. Muyanti Yatsuraya, it is said, that the only opening stanza of Srimad Bhagavatam. Difficult to understand Krishna Leela, even for the gods. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has made it very easy. He's shown the way. Shiddharmarsh once compared him to a great golden mountain which towers high and points in the direction of the very high, as it is, Krishna Lila, the Braja Lila. And as a golden mountain, over, the gold is the overflowing of the eruption of love of God within him, pouring out, coming down everywhere. And as lava does, coming out of a volcano, catching everything, consuming everything in its path. So not only is he pointing in a direction, towering above all theistic conceptions, which make other theistic conceptions valid as they may be, look like foothills in comparison. The experience of it is overflowing in his ecstasy and going everywhere and catching us up. So not just a theoretical pointing in the direction, but practically taking us there almost forcefully. Mahaprabhu almost infringes upon the free will of the jiva. So, such is the, the force of his own love and compassion. So those inhabitants of Vrindavan, they came across the Jamuna looking for more grasses and the furthering of their cowherd lives. And Govardhan Hill stood there as the great nourisher of the cows, Govardhan, that nourishes the cows. So Mahaprabhu, when he came to Vrindavan, to Govardhan Hill, he had such respect for that manifestation of divinity that he would not walk on the hill. But nonetheless, he had a desire to have the darshan of Gopal Didi of Madhavendrapuri. Mahaprabhu had heard about Madhavendrapuri's deity from his own guru, the disciple of Madhavendrapuri, Ishwarpuri. And he reiterated the story that he had heard from his Gurudev to his devotees in traveling from Nadia, Shantipur, Asabadweta to, to Puri. And when they stopped along the way at Ramuna, where the Gopinath deity resides and where 
that Gopinath deity revealed his identity to be one with the Gopal deity of Madhavendrapuri, at whose request Madhavendrapuri had been traveling in that area in search of sandalwood for his deity, who had requested that of him in a dream. So it's a wonderful story, of course. Mahaprabhu told it with great uh, enthusiasm and excitement to all of his devotees. It uh, speaks to us of a number of things, but one important, very important thing, very central to our spiritual progress, comes across very loud and clear and should be underscored. When Madhavendra Puri was residing in Vrindavan, he had the darshan of Gopal Krishna. He was fully taking shelter of Krishna Nam, and Krishna came to him. A young boy came to him, a young cowherd boy in the village, and asked him some questions. He said, Who are you and why are you fasting? I said, Well, I'm, I'm so-and-so, Madhavendrapuri, and, you know, I'm a sannyasi, I'm, this is my life, I'm, I'm fasting and doing my bhajan. But the boy said to him, Well, well this happens to be my village, and nobody fasts in this village. <laughs> nobody go, he meant nobody goes hungry in this village. He said, some people, they grow their own food. Some people live only by begging. So the general populace will grow their own food there. Householders, it's an agricultural community, an agrarian-based society. And the ascetics, the, the renunciates, they will beg, that means madhukari, to go like a bee from flower to flower to collect some honey. So to go to house to house and collect some food and, of course, in return, give harikata and nourish the householders. But he said some people, they don't, they don't even beg. And so I personally supply for them. I got this milk, he said, from, from some gopis, some milk maidens. And so, I'm giving it to you. So, naturally, Puripat Shimadavendra, he took the milk and, and then he went into a trance and he realized that Krishna had come. So, what is the point here? It's worth noting. The point is that Madhavendra Puri was a Sharanagata to the extreme. And the central the mool, the, uh, the swarup lakshan, the primary characteristic of sharanagati, is what? Vaishnav Tantra describes sharanagati as sixfold. It's been cited by Shirupa Goswami in his Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Anukulasya sankalpa pratikula vibarjanam rakshikshatiti vishvashvo goptritve varanam tatha atmanikche pakarpanye sadvidhasharanagati this word surrender, of course, is one we're all familiar with, but it often leaves the bodhis kind of with a question mark in their head. How do I do that? So this is very practical. It's sixfold, and there are five moods that correspond with the sixfold expression of Sharanagati. One of them, as I say, is the Swaruplakshan of Sharanagati, the primary characteristic, and the others are Tathastashalakshan, the marginal characteristics. So that's Swarup. Lakshana Sharanagati, that is Goptritve Varanam Tata. 
the sense of dependence, a mood of a mood that corresponds with the mood of dependence, dependent on Krishna for one's maintenance. That Gopritvevaranamdata, Krishna is my maintainer. This he brought out in the Govardhan Lila very clearly. You don't have to depend on any other gods for your sustenance, instructed the inhabitants of Vrindavan, who were performing the Indra Yagya on a regular basis, yearly, annually. This was a tradition. When Krishna became a little older, about seven years old, he questioned this sacrifice, this yagya. What was it all about? Was it detailed in the scripture? Did it come from the parampara? He used these words. Or is it just something that uh, has just kind of developed uh, out of a sentiment? Nowadays you can, you can find that, that there are all kinds of gods and goddesses that have appeared in India in people's minds, and they have all types of rituals to worship them for this, that, and the other thing, made-up deities and so forth. So Krishna was asking, well, what's, this, what's this all about? He spoke some very wonderfully, some beautiful, uh, profound philosophy at the time, but Nandamarsh was not really a big philosopher, but he agreed, he acquiesced to Krishna's desire to forego the yagya, being charmed by his seven-year-old son, speaking philosophy that will get uh, any mother or father's attention. So he, he forewent the inhabitants of Vrindavan, that yagya. The fact of the matter is, is that Krishna had a little bit of an axe to grind with Indra because, you may know, in his earlier days, Indra was behind a very traumatic experience in Krishna's childhood. And childhood traumas, you know, they have to be dealt with <laughs> as we get older in order to be balanced in life. So because this was, a, was a, a, an annual occasion and it was quite consuming, all of the inhabitants of Vrindavan were actively involved in making the preparations for that yagya. And... In the month just past, now we're in Agrahayana, of course, which is the month of Krishna. We just passed the month of Radha, Damodar month. In that month, we sang about, among other things, and remembered the Damodar Leela. So that Damodar Leela occurred at this time of Gobardhan Leela. And therefore, all of Mother Yashoda's handmaidens and assistants in the house and so forth, they were all out and busy with the Indra Yagya preparation for that while Krishna was left with her alone and then she was met with the dilemma of nursing him at the cost of the milk on the pot boiling over, special milk that had been acquired from special cows within Nanda Maharaj's herd of 900,000 that had been grazed on special grasses with the express purpose of producing milk that would keep Krishna at home because the fact of the matter is, is he was crawling out and going into neighbors' houses and causing a disturbance there. So she chose to put him down, desist from nursing him personally, to stop the milk from boiling over on the stove. And this traumatized Krishna. He felt unwanted by his mother. <laughs> Actually, he wanted to teach the world the measure 
of her devotion. Nayam Sukapo, a very nice verse of uh, Srimad Bhagavatam. And of course, you know the story. Ultimately, he agreed to be bound by her, seeing the force of her affection. She chased him with a stick, not as much to catch him, but out of the fear that he might run away and not come back. She wanted to catch him and bind him to keep him there. So, at any rate, as I say, this somewhat traumatized Krishna. It was Indra's fault, really, when it was all said and done. So they came to Vrindavan, the inhabitants. They resided there near Govardhan Hill. They sought the furtherment of their settlement. And they were performing this kind of yagya annually. And this leela was performed to stop this kind of thing and establish what? That they only needed to depend upon Krishna for their maintenance. Not any god, goddess, no one else. This is the real center of Sharanagati, this this spirit. This is the spirit that Krishna speaks about Sharanagati directly. What he emphasizes when he speaks about Sharanagati directly in the Gita, when he concludes his sermon to Arjuna, Sarva Dharman Puritya Mami Kam. Sharanam Braja, Aham Tom Sarva Pahapebu, Moksha Yashami Masucha. We worry about so many things. If we don't do this, if we don't do that, who will take care of us? Who will maintain my family? Who will protect my children? What if I don't have a health care plan? All these things. We worry about all these things. Bhagavatam says it's not the parents who maintain as guardians their children. It's not the doctor or medicine that cures illness. It's not the lifeguard that saves one drowning in the ocean. It's Krishna. <laughs> when Krishna says Sarva Dharman Prityaja in Gita, give up Dharma. That's a very strong statement. It's not so strong to us because we're not in steep in the culture of Varnashram Dharma. But that's the context in which this is spoken. And in Varnashram Dharma, there are so many rules and so many regulations and so many consequences, as there will be good consequences for following and adhering to all the guidelines for human life recorded there in the scripture. So there are consequences for not doing so. And a person like Arjuna could be, could be a bit nervous that I'm going to forego all these things you're just my friend, I'm just going to hang out with you. And there won't be any reactions. Or to underscore that there won't be Krishna's whatever sinful reactions would normally accrue for foregoing these things, I'll cover for that. You don't have to worry. So the whole religious system is one of appropriately acknowledging the powers in nature that provide our necessities that make for the bounty of life and attributing to them not in a superstitious way but in a very thoughtful way uh, consciousness as much as our own experience is that there's consciousness behind all the movements of our own lives and to the extent that we are relatively speaking maintainers of anyone it is that, that our ability to be so is driven by by consciousness I've often given the example that we we are maintained in our household, we are supplied, I should say, 
various necessities like water and light and heat and so forth by turning different switches and buttons and dials and so forth. But if we open the mailbox, we find that there's someone on the other end that has to be acknowledged. We have a bill to pay. If we don't acknowledge those entities and pay the bills, then those switches and dials and buttons, they won't work anymore. So in a, in a, in a larger sense, uh, in the necessities of life, the bounty of life, there's consciousness behind that. This was the vision, this was the experience, the mystical experience of the rishis. And therefore, they, they gave names to those, that the consciousness behind those movements of nature. They didn't see nature as independent of consciousness. And they saw, moreover, they saw consciousness as, as prior, if you will, to, to matter. Any of the movements of matter, its, its change, its transformations, its evolution within material life is backed, fostered by, by consciousness. Actually, Hindus were evolutionists long before Darwin. Their idea was that as the necessity to see arose in consciousness, then corresponding material manifestations came into being with the souls as it is driven by, by a karmic necessity in its, its descent, so to speak, from a kind of a homogeneous state, like the, we call that uh, susupti, deep, dreamless sleep. This is how they, in a very poetic way, they envisioned the world. Who's to say what the world is, is like? And shall we think that because some people see the world as emanating from the person of Vishnu, that, that it's just a story? No, it's, a way, it's a way of seeing, a very poetic way of seeing and experiencing. And everyone has a different eye based on their, their consciousness how they will perceive what the world's about, how it works, and, and so forth. To attribute a chariot to the sun riding across the sky, as Bhagavatam does. Yet, what is it? Yet, chakshuteva savita sakala grahanam. The kalchakra, the wheel of time. These are very poetic and beautiful ways of talking about Something that could be talked of in a, in a very, on very dry terms also, explained in a very dry, mechanistic and, if you will, scientific way, rational way. They spoke about it in a, in a poetic way. And poetry, of course, is the language of love. And they were in love. They were in love with reality. Because they were not exploiting the world for their own... Uh, purposes based on misidentification with matter that most people are conditioned by. So when stepping back from exploiting the world, seeing that they had no need, no needs, no necessities, nothing to take from, that they were of a different nature, categorically they were different from matter. So what will matter do for me? What can matter do for consciousness? Nothing, really. But does it facilitate it? Not really. 
I've often said it's not because we have eyes that we can see or a mind that we can think. We are the seer. We are the knower. And these things are getting in the way of our seeing, knowing, experiencing, and so forth. So this was their experience. Vedanta is very much about experience. It's not about theory. There is a theory that explains the experience, but the core of a Vedantist's way of going about explaining life is experience. It's at the core. If you study very carefully, you see it's all about experience. It's not a theoretical at all. It's based in their experience, so their reading of the of the reality. And their experience was that, that they were consciousness, not matter. And they had nothing to gain from matter. So not taking from matter, they were therefore givers. And by being such, they saw the world very differently. And living is re really progressively is about giving. Love is about giving. So because they were givers, naturally they saw the world in a poetic way rather than in a, in a mechanistic way. And, uh, it wasn't irrational, you know, very kind of super-rational, trans-rational. So they described in this way their experience. Vishnu slumbering and waking and oh and thinking let me become many why he has no purpose to fulfill so out of joy out of love let me become many and so the consciousness starts to proceed and from a condition in which their individuality cannot be uh, determined or experienced, although it exists, they come into a heterogeneous state and driven by anadi karma, karma without beginning. This thing is going on again and again and again. The world, bhutva bhutva paliyate, creation, so-called uh, manifesting the material world becomes unmanifest. And so there's a long history eternal history of the Leela of Vishnu. We call it Shrishti Leela, the Leela of creation, which makes for the possibility of, of God had to be the Savior also. It's a Leela. So as the souls participating in that Leela, at the time of the manifestation of the material world, come in touch with matter and bring it to life, animate the world, then their necessity, based on the karma, which is tied to the world, it's a false necessity, of course, their necessity to see, their necessity to hear, their necessity to, to taste and so forth, gives rise then in nature for sun to manifest and light for seeing and then the eyes to manifest. And in this way, this evolution is going on. So as I say, the Hindus were evolutionists long before Dharma, Darwin, but they had a slightly different idea. One, of course, that, that Darwin never dealt with, which was the origins. Origins. Hmm. How it is that biology came from chemistry. <laughs> that doesn't really make a lot of sense. That's a huge jump from chemistry, which they say is the beginning. Something biological happened. Life. They may give an interesting explanation of the progression, a biological progression, 
but it's a certainly a leap to go from chemicals to biology, as, as Prabhupada used to like to say. And therefore, kind of you know, in a simplistic way, he concluded that life comes from life. So the world is moving in this way based on the false necessity, sense of necessity of the jivas, and it will end by their understanding their real necessity to take shelter of Krishna, that they are dependent by nature upon Krishna. And recognizing that, that we call sharanagati, that move of dependence. This is the center of sharanagati. Krishna sought to establish this in his lila, in the Govardhan lila, by dismissing the Indra-yogya. We have many necessities. We don't think we have a necessity to pray to Indra or this one or that. We, we, or, or this is the mercy of Mahaprabhu. We've immediately come to the, the Sankirtan movement of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu through Sadhu Sangha and been relieved from the burden of Dharma Shastra and, and all these things. But Arjuna wasn't like that. So it was a real leap for him, you can imagine. Krishna's statement is very provocative. Just take shelter of me, Dusharanagati. So when he speaks about it there, he speaks about the, the, the center of it, dependence upon him. Therefore he says, forget all these other gods whom civilized people understand are maintaining us and whom they show gratitude for. He's saying, don't pay your bills. Just live with me. And don't, you don't care if they stack up in the mailbox, the heat bill, the light bill, everything. Don't worry about it. I'll provide light. I'll keep you warm at night. Why drink water? I'll give you nectar. <laughs> Amrit. This is a statement. And our task is to validate that in our lives. We have every reason to be encouraged to do so, to move progressively in that direction. Krishna is speaking about it. There are many statements about it in Shastra. There are examples, like the life of Madhavendra Puri, that Mahaprabhu was so inspired to tell his followers about, having heard about it from Ishwar Puripad, his guru. And when he came to Vrindavan, finally, despite so many obstacles, his obstacles were the affection of his devotees. Our obstacles are the false affections <laughs> of the world and the false sense of our being needed as a maintainer or needing to do other things to maintain and take care and provide for ourselves and so forth. At any rate, when he arrived there, then with great regard for Govardhan Hill, he had the desire to have the darshan of the original Gopal deity of Madhavendrapuri, who had sent Madhavendrapuri on a task to collect the sandalwood, which then gave rise to the Chirchor Gopinath in Ramuna to steal the gear, the sweet, the sweet rice for Madhavendra, and, and so forth. So these wonderful stories about the deities, they give us and lives of devotees, they give us inspiration to move in this direction. So we should be encouraged by them. The deity is not a stone. In fact, we are cautioned very strongly in the literature. What is it? Vaishnavi, Jati Bhuti, Gurushu, Naramati, and the first part, Archa, Shiladiya, Gurushu, Naramati, Vaishnavi, Jati Bhuti. Arche Vishnu Shiladi Guru 
Ati Vishnu Shiladi means one should not think the stone, Shila means stone. The stone representation of Vishnu is a stone. Don't think like that. Hmm? And many people do, even while keeping them in the house, even while visiting those stones in the temple and going through the motions. In reality, they're thinking, if we study their lives, Jesus is the stone. You know, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, in his bold preaching, once made a theistic exhibit, a number of theistic exhibits. This was in the 1920s. So this was like, in India, you can imagine this was like making a multimedia Steven Spielberg kind of presentation of Krishna consciousness in our times. Hmm? He made a theistic exhibit and took it around different places and, and held festivals and people would come. One of the exhibits was a was a Brahman, a smart Brahman, holding a shaligram, shila, and a nut. He was saying that these guys are worshipping the shaligram shila, but actually they're just using it as a nutcracker. They are, in other words, what they're doing is they're worshipping the shaligram shila ostensibly, apparently, and they've got all the rules and everything, how to do it exactly right and everything. And, and they don't let anybody else do it. They're the professionals, these fellows. But the, the motive behind it is that they're seeking to make a living. They're rather than depending upon the Shila to maintain them in the way that he is, is certainly capable of doing by enabling them to transcend the necessities of hunger and thirst material necessities and so forth. They're using him only to pursue all of those things. Oh, and this was caused an outrage amongst the smartos. They took Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur Prabhupada to court, something you, only you could do in India, probably. <laughs> they took him to court, and there was a huge proceeding. And in the end, they made the argument after he made his points and was prevailing, they came with a final argument that, all right, you know, yes, yeah, some people may, Brahmins, smart Brahmins, they may do this, but we see that your Gaudiya people also do it. There are people who are Gaudiyas, Gaudiya, they're also doing like this. And Bhaktisthan said, 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 yes, so we'll settle the case. You put, put Gaudiya Tilak on that exhibit. So he was not shy to critique his own tradition. He wasn't just a sectarian person criticizing other sects, but he was seeking to draw out essential spiritual truths and prepare to apply them, whatever the, whatever the cost may be. If it meant I had to abandon my own group because they were guilty of that, then he wasn't shy to do so. It didn't make him entirely popular at the time but it spread his name all over the world with so many more people. And progressive people, thoughtful people, educated people, the people that Bhaktivinoda Thakur was envisioning when he did what he did. He basically revisioned Gaudiya Vaishnavism for the previous and the present century. 
This is basically what Bhaktivinoda Thakur's contribution was. So that he, he breathed life into it with a vision for this and who knows how many more centuries. But this one and the last one, you should be so proud to be members of the Bhaktivinoda Paribar, the family of Bhaktivinoda, as Bhaktisiddhanta used to refer to his mission and Prabhupada used to refer to his mission in similar terms. It is the mission of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. So we shouldn't use the deity like that. We're cautioned in the scripture. Arche Vishnu Shiladi Gurusu Naramati Vaishnavi Jati Bhuti. We shouldn't use the, the deity as a as a way of just our furthering our illusion. We shouldn't think of the Guru as an ordinary person. He's, it says and nor the neither the Vaishnav, that he's just a, a, a member of the of the uh, divisions of society, Varnashram Dharma, Vaishnavi Jati Bhuti. All these things we should we're cautioned about. So we should, we should think about that. We should take these uh, philosophy, these stories, if you will, that uh, the lives of great devotees and tales of the deities and so forth, and get inspiration from them to validate that in our own life, that the deity is not a stone. Mahaprabhu wanted to have the darshan of Gopal, but he had such regard for Govardhan Hill that he would not walk on Govardhan Hill. Dilemma. What to do? The deity came up with a solution. So Gopal Deity arranged for the Muslims to attack. They were active in that area and they were not fond of, of deities. That particular brand of Islam was very much against the idea of, of worshipping the, the, the idol, as they would see it. So that fellows like Aurangzeb, they they did unmentionable things. So these, this is also this this may be something that, in, the, in contrast, may shake the faith of a devotee when we hear the devotee's stories about the deity, but then we hear somebody else took the deity and broke broke the deity in half and put it underneath a mosque and build a mosque on top of it. It may shake our faith, but no. If we study carefully, then it will not. The deity is arranging all these things. If we learn to love the deity in his deity form, then he may want to take us beyond that also. Find him beyond that as well. To universalize him as he is. He's localized, but that's to help us to see him everywhere, ultimately. One thing is to see him in the temple, and if we see him properly, then we can see him everywhere. The deity is a meeting between time and eternity. It's that place where eternity meets with time for those under the influence of the Kal Chakra, the time, wheel of time to take them beyond time. All of his movements, all of his arrangements are for for that purpose. Even the dismantling of his temple in some instances. And force those devotees to find him again, test the measure of their conviction and so forth. And if they pass, then they they, they find him beyond. He cannot be destroyed. But this is a very confirming kind of story. The deity arranged for the Muslims attack to attack 
And he sent one fellow ahead to warn the village and he took the deity and moved the deity. And they were moving him from village to village. And then the news came to Mahabrabhu, the deity is now hidden here, you can go. So he went and had the darshan of the Gopal deity. When Rupa Goswami came to Vrindavan, same thing happened. He had heard Mahaprabhu did not walk on Govardhan Hill, so he did not walk on Govardhan. But he wanted to have the darshan of the deity. Deity made arrangement. Came to Mathura, Rupa Goswami had the darshan. So these deities, they are not stone. We shouldn't think like that. But someone will say, but, but he's not installed. Then why are you worshipping? Why? What is that installation? There is something to that. That's true. The deity is living in the heart of the Acharya. Who is a Sharanagata? in the full sense of the term, has erected in his or her heart the stage on which the drama of Krishna Lila will be performed. Ruchi Bhakti, this stage, I don't mean, I'm using the word stage in two different ways, this, the stage, the developmental stage of Ruchi, that corresponds with erecting the stage of Sharanagati on which this is, this is Krishna Lila's performed. This is, this is the end of the words, the Sharanagati, the surrender, this is the, this is the basis of the whole of the Lila. It arises out of that. It condenses and thickens and, and expresses itself in the forms of uh, all these different types of loving reciprocation with Krishna. This is the basis, Sharanagati. At Ruchi, therefore Ruchi is called Shuddha Bhakti. Bhaktivinodakus explained. Nandanam, Najanam, Nasundarim, Kobitamba, Mahaprabhu said. This is Ruchi. No other interest. Babutad Bhaktirahai Tukitai. At that point then the Leela is soon to come, soon to make its appearance in the heart of the Sadaka, in Asakti. Then he enters into Baba Bhakti. The goal, the fruit of sadhana, and cultivates that to attain Prem. This should be our interim goal, to be a Sharanagata in the full sense of the term. And depend upon Krishna. And bring all these devotional activities to life. Truly bring the deity to life. But we don't do that. We, we think, oh, he's not installed, or he's this, or he's that, and I'm moving the deity to Karnamrita's house while I go away on vacation. And uh, no, he's coming of his own accord. Isn't that our philosophy? Hmm? So, as an aside, of course, some people are not so pleased that I've come to the community, but Radha Gopinath doesn't seem to mind. So whose opinion will we take? And it's, oh, well, what is that? That's our philosophy. <laughs> that you should try to understand. You should apply yourself. If you could see like that, then you'd see what's really behind everything, what's really going on, who's really behind everything, who's really doing what. If you're interested in that, you should go this far. Not in any relative way, but in an absolute way. That will be a very happy vision, and you will feel well protected, well maintained. You will not have any difficulty foregoing things that are not favorable to Krishna's service and embracing things that are. You will be humble and you will be resigned self in yourself to, to Krishna's service. This is Sharanagati, all these six things. 
as I said, they have different moods behind them. Accept the favorable, reject the unfavorable. This is a vow, a promise. We try to do like that. It's the spirit of it. Make a, make a commitment. Don't be afraid of commitment. Rakshikshatadivishvat, so that, that Krishna is my protector. Vishvas means, they have a sense of, Vishvas means faith, but it means also like confidence. Faith coming to confidence. It's like there's a difference between pride and confidence. Someone may be confident about what they're saying. We would hope to have some conviction, strong faith. So faith that Krishna is my protector. Why should we not have that? That Krishna Nam can protect me. I mean, he's protected. Do we have anyone the likes of Putana, Agasur, Bakasur to, to deal with? Kind of, yeah, in one sense, within ourselves. That's true. Not really on the outside, but within ourselves. He's competent to slay all these demons, all these anarchists. He can maintain us, as we've been dis discussing. He's alive. Dependence. Then Atmanic shape. The mood behind this aspect of Sharanagati is if I'm accepting things that are favorable, rejecting things that are unfavorable to Bhakti, if I have confidence that Krishna will protect me, if I have a sense of depending only upon Krishna for my maintenance, in all this, who am I? Atmanikship means I'm a servant of Krishna. I should live my life for his pleasure and humility, karpanye, dainya. This is the sixth. So, this should be our interim goal, to be a Sharanagata in the full sense of the term. This will bring bhakti, our bhakti, our practice to life. This is the life of bhakti. Don't think that Sharanagati is the end. When it is all over, I'll surrender. No. Surrender is the beginning. <laughs> that is the beginning. When Krishna concludes the Gita, he's really beginning now to talk about bhakti. He said it in the ninth chapter when he said to Arjun that become my devotee, think of me, worship me. This is what you should do. He reiterated it again at the end, in the close, at the 18th chapter. And after saying, be, just become my devotee, think of me, worship me, offer homage unto me, and so forth, then he gave this verse. How to do it? Where to begin? As if Arjuna was thinking, well, how will I become a devotee? How will I always think of you? I've got so many things to do. And how are you going to protect me? I've got this whole war to fight here, and, and so forth. Krishna says, he speaks about Sharanagati. This is the way. This seeks no qualification. You should understand this also. Sharanagati seeks no qualification. Anyone can do from any position. And there are many examples like this in history. In Ramanuja Sampradaya, they give great regard to Sharanagati. After a whole scholarly explanation of the Gita by Ramanuja, which gives the highest position to bhakti, but qualifies that one must first do karma, then jnana, to come to bhakti. A little bit of a different idea for Mahaprabhu. He comes to this verse in the conclusion, he says, but anyway, you can, that can all be thrown out just by being a sharanagata. By this one thing, sharanagati. He gave some emphasis in that, and Mahaprabhu was, that comes, that's part of Mahaprabhu's sampradaya, as there are two things from each of the four sampradayas that are all in Mahaprabhu's sampradaya. 
the Sharanagati is one from Ramanuja Sampradaya. We emphasize that. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur in particular, in our group, in our lineage, in our part of our, has emphasized this. He has equated, practically speaking, Sharanagati with Shraddha, surrender with faith. It means faith is an active thing. It's not just a theoretical thing. He's taking it from the abstract and giving it, concretizing it that expresses itself as Sharanagati. And this is the sixfold Sharanagati. And these are the moods behind it. And, this is, and so on. This should be our interim goal. Prem will come from there. Krishna Lila will appear on, on that stage. We have to erect that stage. So we are living here and the deity of the community is here in the house. We should feel very fortunate that, that, that they've chosen to reside here. Kindly enough, in my last two visits, they've They've been here. They've been here ever since I was here, or did they? Um, last, last Purnim. Last Purnim. So they were here the last time I was here, and they've stayed since then. Every now and then, they, I, I guess, they walk over to the temple. <laughs> hmm. And people argue whether or not they should be the deity of the community. <laughs> This is something is there. I was saying about installation because the, the, the you know, whose heart is, who is a Sharanagat who's established this stage in the heart, and 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 and, and, and their bhakti ashuda. I mean, had no other, no other desire. So, for them to confirm the deity's presence and and organize and, and engage people in the service, that's what we call installation. That an acharya sadhu says he will accept worship from you in this form. There's something to that. But then again, the other side is everybody has some devotion. Or they see the deity with the eye of that devotion. And in such instances, then, some sadhu may come and confirm, yes, this is going on. We'll get encouragement from that. But it's not entirely dependent upon such. Do you understand? So we shouldn't think, oh, it's not here. No. Then if he's not, why, why are we worshipping him? Oh, they're my uninstalled deities, therefore I... That's just a way of... Hmm? Put him in a box. Put him in a box, yeah. Of course, the deity does mind going in a box. That's another thing. He's very, as Prabhupada used to say, comes in a form that you can handle. If he was speaking all the time, it would be difficult for you, and he knows that, because he would say, more chapatis, more this, more that, you'd be very busy. <laughs> So he's kind enough not to speak to us. Because <laughs> we are not quite ready, but the idea is to become more prepared. He'll give us plenty to do. We won't have time to think about eating and sleeping and all these, maintaining ourselves. The point is, that is how Krishna maintains us, by telling us, hey, I've got desires, <laughs> he says. I want this. I want that. You maintain me. Then I'll maintain you. Is that fair? Is that reasonable? And I'm capable. So, we should think like this, we should speak like this. These are very basic, basic elementary spiritual points that we need to be reminded of, we need to remind our friends of, so that our practice comes to life. Otherwise it becomes lifeless. Without Sharanagati, it's a lifeless practice. And then there's so much bickering about things that are not worth bickering about and even he's chanting his rounds and thinking ill thoughts of another who is also chanting. This is what is that? So, this way we have to help one another.
bring life to our practice, make it alive. Actually, Sharanagati, as I say, is not the end, it's the beginning. From there, the Bhagavatam comes. From the end of the Gita, Bhagavatam begins. And it begins on the same note, the same note that the Gita closes on. Dharma projita kaita votra. Give up all this dharma, cheating dharma. Using God to maintain your material illusion, to foster your material illusion, to bless your material illusion. This is, you're cheating yourself. Don't do that to yourself. Give that up, give it up, and do this. What? Oh, surrender to Krishna. That's what Bhagavatam begins with. It's the Gita close within the whole lila of, of Krishna expands. What, what is Bhagavatam? Dissertation on the Ashrai Tattva. Ashrai means shelter, shelter giving tattva, the ultimate shelter. It's all about Sharanagati. He's sheltering everyone. There are ten subjects of Bhagavatam. One is Ashrai Tattva, nine are the Ashrita Tattva. We're included in that, the sheltered principles. Even the avatars are sheltered. It's not difficult for us to support Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. This is another example. All the Ishanukata. Ishanukata. This is one of the Ashrita Tattvas of Srimad Bhagavatam. It's explained by Sukadeva, but it's explained by Sutta Goswami, both of them. In the beginning of Bhagavatam, just the tenth chapter of the second canto, Sukadeva just be, only begins speaking in the second canto. There he establishes. And in the end, hmm, Sutta Goswami, the same way. They explain the ten subjects of Bhagavatam. Why have they distinguished between the Ashrai Tattva and Ishanukata? Ishanukata means topics about the avatars. They have distinguished the avatars from avatari. Krishna's avatari, source of all avatars. Important point. There's no, there's no question of really attaining Braj Bhakti without understanding this point. Therefore, Prabhupada used to emphasize it so much. So Bhagavatam begins, it's like this, it's where the Gita leaves off, and it's all about the Ashrai Tattva, the shelter-giving principle, who's maintaining everyone, taking care of everyone, the truth behind that. So we have to come to embrace that. That will give life, then, to our practice. Otherwise, the practice is lifeless. And when it comes to life, then, oh, then there's no, no problems anymore, no difficulties. Everyone can, is in wonder at the movement of Bhagwan. No struggle. So try to share this with your friends. Ask them to come for the darshan of Radha Gopinath. Any questions? Yes. I've been having a discussion on this point. Um, actually, Narendra Maharaj was here a couple weeks ago. He, he told the story of, I think, with Srivast Thakur that he used to um, clap his hands three times, and he said, if my maintenance isn't supplied for, then I'll throw myself in the Ganges. And always his maintenance was, was supplied. So that that's one example we have, but then we also have the example of you know, the idea of really endeavoring with valor and depending on Krishna for the results. So we have both kinds of examples in our tradition, one to endeavor and, and depend on Krishna, and the other is to do nothing but just chant and, and do sadhana and depend on Krishna. So is that just a matter of our faith, which on the spectrum we want to 
fall in as far as how much we want an addition for maintenance and What's the end, other end of the spectrum? Well, the one end of the spectrum being just to perform your sadhana and depend on Krishna, the other being, you know, really, like Arjuna, you know, you have to really endeavor with valor and do your duty and and then depend on Krishna for the result of that. So it seems like we have that, both of those examples in our tradition. Duty being? Yeah, it's a question of realization. And it, it'll be applied differently by different people. The Sharanagati will be applied differently for a monastic than it will for a householder. So a householder has certain... The duty of both is one, to surrender to Krishna, but it expresses itself differently relative to the, their, the circumstances. So the householder has to have some maintenance, sustenance, some, some livelihood. Kolabetra Sridhar, he had a job. His job was making banana leaf plates. And he sold them. And from selling them, he got enough to live on. You can imagine how simply he was living. But he got some profit from that, too, beyond what he needed to live on. And he used to use the profit to worship the Ganges, which is bhakti, so... He was a householder, he had a job, and he was a Sharanagata. So it has a dynamic ap application relative to our circumstances. Yes? I don't know where I got this problem, but it's, it has to do with uh, Vishnu and Krishna. Like in the Bhagavad Gita, Prabhupada uses the word Vishnu also many times. And mm -hmm. Somehow, I, I've never understood exactly, but to me there's like a great difference. But even you today, you know, about the Shila being manifestation of Vishnu. And so I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about the, the difference or the... Well, the is Krishna all-pervasive? Yes. Then, Krishna is Vishnu. Vishnu means all-pervasive. Is Krishna God? then he's Vishnu, Vishnu's God. So, for example, when Sukadeva Goswami concludes the narration of the Rasalila in Srimad Bhagavatam, Prakshit Maharaj asks the question, how can this uh, Krishna, who's supposed to be the, the very Dharma Setu, the bridge of Dharma, we can cross over on the strength of, how can he be like one with other people's wives? This is difficult to understand. And Sukadeva Goswami says, first of all, he says, you should understand that he's the husband of the gopis' husbands. That you should understand. That means he's God, actually. And then he says, Vikriditam Rajabadubiridam Chavishnu, Shadhanbitam Nushanayad Atavarna Yatya, Bhaktim Param Patilabdhikamam, Hidroga Mashpapai Notya Jirena Dhira. He says, that you should know that the pastimes of Vishnu, Vikriditam, Vikriditam means like Leela, pastimes, play. Vikriditam Brajabadu. Brajabadu means the, the wives, the Brajad Sundaris, the gopis. The pastimes of the wives of Braj, the gopis, with Vishnu are such that Shadhanvita Anu, one who hears them 
anu properly by following it means in the disciplic succession hearing from a proper source hears about them and shraddha shraddhanvita means with very firm faith like nishta firm faith shraddhanvita nushanayad shunayad means to hear atavarnayadya bhaktim param pratilabdya kamam bhakti will come inside of them and chase lust away which is the hridrogam the disease of the heart so he's saying that these pastimes understand one thing about them they're so pure that if you approach them properly through the right source even though you have lust in your heart they will come in your heart they won't be affected by lust they'll get rid of the lust in your heart these are the pastimes of god he's saying that's why he uses the name vishnu he's talking about krishna he wants to tell everybody he wants to tell the maharaj look at your stage you should understand these are god's pastimes that will help you to understand them so that you'll approach them in the right way and gradually you'll enter into the bhava the ecstasy of forgetting that krishna is god which is the condition of the gopis and the other inhabitants of vrindavan do you follow so sometimes we like to point out that krishna is god and one of the ways of doing that is referring to him as vishnu so sometimes prabhupada does that at the same time yes you're correct vishnu and krishna are are very very different narayan and krishna are very different certainly that's the experience of the inhabitants of vrindavan nanda maharaj showed them that they worship vishnu they worship narayan in their homes he's god krishna is just their son he does wonderful things but it doesn't change the fact that he's their son narayan does these things through him they think it's narayan does these things that's their vision mhm basically narayan vishnu these are names for god krishna is another name it's a, it is a nice name for god the most complete name for god in one sense but it's a, what it's saying is this guy is irresistible that's what krishna means this guy is irresistible i mean it's not really the way you generally talk about god he's all pervading not i ana he's the shelter of all all beings um but when it comes to this manifestation of divinity they're saying this guy's irresistible things like hot you know so <laughs> basically it's something like that that's why it's so like huh what are you saying it's scandalous practically it's it's from a religious point of view it appears scandalous but who teaches us about it mahaprabhu who had the morals of ram as a sanyasi he comes he comes to teach about his scandalous leela and he does so in the person of mahaprabhu who's a sanyasi and has this the strictness and the moral integrity of of ramchandra made other sanyasis like frightened in his presence i mean when bhagwan decides to show bairagya he has all bairagya that's one of his opulences oh, mahaprabhu showed such extreme position of sanyas that paramananda puri keshava bharati this uh, brahmananda bharati these were older gentlemen mahaprabhu was a 25 year old boy his renunciation frightened them 
they felt like maybe they were enjoyers in his presence in comparison. But they were pseudo-renunciates only. Such is the power of his renunciation. He came to teach about this scandalous religious idea where the name Krishna is used. They also call him Hari in Vrindavan. But they think of it differently. Hari is a name for God who takes away. But in Vrindavan, there's a favorite name of Krishna amongst the inhabitants because they think, Hari, he's taken, he stole my heart. And that's how they think of him. He's irresistible. Jiva Goswami has explained Bhagavan like this. The word Bhagavan. And of course he's referring to Swayam Bhagavan, who's irresistible. The full expression of the term Bhagavan. Irresistible. Hear about him, you're finished. What did Rupa Goswami say? Don't go to the banks of the Jamuna to see that Krishna smiling, playing his flute, standing attractively in his threefold bending form. Otherwise you'll be finished. You won't be able to return home again. Homebreaker. <laughs> That's what he is. Very compelling idea, huh? What else? Any other questions? Yes. In, in relation to her question about um, Krishna and Vishnu, isn't there something like about killing the demons? Yes. It is said that just as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu performs Sankirtan, one side of that is the Yuga Dharma, establishing religious principles. Similarly, although he's Krishna, the Yuga Avatar is expressing himself through Mahaprabhu. Similarly, Krishna establishes religious principles. That's the descent of Bhagwan, Paritanaya Sadhunam Vinashaya Chaduskritam, to establish Dharma. So Krishna's purpose is different. Krishna doesn't have a purpose. Krishna is not concerned with Dharma. That should be pretty clear. <laughs> Vishnu is concerned with that. So it's the Vishnu in him that does that. And particularly in the Braj, where Krishna is Krishna, this is the Krishna himself, the original Krishna, standing next to Radha. Some demons, they do come to Vrindavan. Krishna takes care of them, but that's the Vishnu in him that does so. Vishnu is concerned with religious principles. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course, is Krishna, and he's the Yuga Avatar at the same time. Mahaprabhu's Sankirtan is, is the Yuga Dharma, but it's woven together with a wreath of prem. So he's giving the Yuga Dharma, which is establishing religious principles, which in effect in our lives is taking away anarthas by chanting, cleansing our heart, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But the same Sankirtan doesn't stop there then. It's Prem Sankirtan, a special kind of Sankirtan. And it gives Prem of Braj Bhakti also. So, yes, Vishnu is concerned with religious principles and Krishna's not. He's, he's beyond that. And his whole Leela demonstrates that. Another question? Yes. Sometimes we hear that uh, in the Lord there's only the fear of demons, and, but we read in the... Uh, Read Bhagavatamrita about different demons that, that uh, we were discussing this, my wife and I, and, uh, you know, like uh, Keshi, Krishna doesn't, you know, that he's there in, in that description, and Krishna doesn't kill him, but he kind of tames him, and he pulls the card, and so does that mean, when you say there's no demons, is that, in the spiritual world, does that just mean that there's no, uh, 
animosity towards Krishna. So if there's someone like Keshi creating maybe a disturbance in Vrindavan, it's just on a different level because he's not really demoniac in the sense of just for, to enhance the Leela. Mm-hmm. Yep. All these descriptions of the Leela, they are all very uh, limited because it's, by its very definition, it's beyond words, beyond mind. So different acharyas will speak with different nuances about that uh, experience, especially Golok, Aprakata Leela. It's, uh, it's, you have to, you have to go there. So the way of talking about it, well, there's rumors, or Sanatana Prabhu has said some things in Brihad Bhagavatamrita, like you're, you're mentioning. But yes, basically the idea is there's no, there's no animosity there, there's no, there's no possibility. Here, when the Leela manifests, then there's meeting of those things. What else? I don't understand about the um, evolution. You were talking about how evolution came from necessity. You know, know, like how it's described in the universal form, how first he desired, you know, to taste some of the tongue and water. So is it something like that, and how does it work? Like like it's um, lifetime to lifetime, and I thought we were against evolution. Yeah. Well, um, we're against the idea that life comes from matter. This is at the core. And as much as evolutionary theory asserts that consciousness, which we consider life, arises out of matter, we disagree. Disagreeing with evolution beyond that, that we, we may on, to some extent, but we also acknowledged we do see evolution for reasons of necessity of material necessity we do see things happen that people species adopt out of necessity see this is this was what darwin darwin when he studied nature he gave up believing in god because he saw that nature was just really cruel and it was that one living being was food for another and he saw some examples in nature that were really shocking to him. Like some insects appear to be just like living for the purpose of being eaten by another. And he, so he couldn't believe in God after that. And then gradually he developed his theory that the world is moving and progressing out of a sense of self-preservation on the part of the different species. Now, the interesting point here that I would like to raise is that the Bhagavatam agrees with that 108%. The Bhagavatam says, Jibo Jiva Sijivanam. One living being is food for another. That's what the material world is. It is a struggle for existence. And people are, whoever fights this best and adapts, survives. But interestingly enough, the Bhagavatam presents that same idea as overwhelming impetus to believe in God, to pursue God consciousness. Very interesting. So there's a level that we agree with with, uh, Darwin's idea. I I don't know, it's been developed from there. I'm not a scientist by so many people in a more sophisticated way than he ever presented it, which is based largely in in an attempt to refute any objections things that, that Darwin didn't think about and so forth, that other people thought about that cast a doubt on it, 
then modern believers in that have reasoned against that and modified his theory and so forth. And you know, I mean, there's the whole question of well, if everything, simplistically speaking, Darwin's theory is very simplistic, and ultimately, if everything is about self-preservation, then how do we deal with examples in nature of uh, acts of kindness? You find them in some rare instances in, in animal society, and other, and it certainly, certainly you find them in human society. People do things that, and so then, you know, people have philosophized and theorized. But really, the basis of this is so on and so forth. And then there's social, social Darwinism, and, and the whole idea that humans, well, they're social beings, so they're different than animals. They have different necessities, and you know, and in this way, they try to keep it keep it alive and so forth. I mean, I'm not up to date with it, with it and whatnot, but. We don't disagree with it entirely that something like that is is taking place. And then you read the Bhagavatam; it's it's an explanation of material existence and the time spans and things that are talked about in there are really really quite long. And so there's probably a way to fit whatever is true, really true about evolution, inside the Bhagavatam. I tell you, whatever you can find that's actually true is true. And it must be in the real scripture. You just must be reading it wrong. You have to go back and look at it. Look at it again, if it is revealed knowledge, which, which of course it is. But the, at the core, like I say, we disagree with the idea that, that consciousness evolves from matter. That matter, at some point, which is in their explanation, of chemicals comes to life, and they have no explanation for that. That's like you know, saying a refrigerator turned into a television or something like that. It just you know, it's a real leap. But because consciousness is elusive as it is to material instruments, mind and intellect, are, of which are examples, then it's difficult, if not impossible, to conclusively demonstrate the superiority, although it's common sense in my opinion, of consciousness over matter and how consciousness is behind matter and gives rise to the movements of matter rather than matter giving rise to consciousness. You follow? So we are uh, better to argue that in a society that puts so much stock in, in evolution. That, that seems to be a very a core point that no matter how much evidence you may have of species adapting out of necessity, you have no evidence of matter turning into consciousness. That's just a theory. Kind of tries to sew the whole thing together and make it comprehensive. So, otherwise, some kind of evolution is going on. Hopefully, spiritual evolution is going on. But yes, Vishnu. But Vishnu means, and then so many living entities, and he puts a stamp of his own individuality on each one, and each one has the karmic necessity and so forth. And and so, in a in a cosmic macrocosmic sense, then these elements come into being. And in a microcosmic sense terms of each individual soul, their will, their desire, is the driving force behind material existence. And so the matter is responding to the will of the jiva and man manifesting over time and, and so forth, all the different elements and taking shape and, and so on. Does that help? So that's why there's, you know, high technology and all of that is responding. Um, you know, um, I, I read in Hindu Encounter with Modernity something about 
how Bhaktivinoda created the Das Avatar with evolution, how each mm-hmm. incarnation was evolving. Yeah, so he was very progressive, and he was trying to work with existing sensibilities in terms of presenting Krishna consciousness in a a progressive way that it would have credence. I mean, you don't go to a society that, you know, just absolutely believes in one thing, and and, uh, it may not be the best strategy always just to attack that thing. And Prabhupada was very on the, kind of on the attack, but he was really, if you focus, you look, you see, he was really attacking this main, the, the crux of the whole issue that I mentioned, consciousness evolving out of matter. He dealt with the rest of it to some extent by saying, well, you know, all the species are there all, all, originally and, and so forth. One doesn't come from the other, and they're all existing, you know, from... But there's a way of looking at that in terms of evolution also when you look at time frames and so forth and what the Bhagavatam is dealing with, what, what time frames it's speaking in.